Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. Today our message is based on verses 30 and 31, the last two verses of this paragraph. Hebrews 10, 26. And the question is, do we know him who said? Do we know him who said? 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you knowing who you are. And we pray that we'll have a better comprehension of who you truly are. May we from this passage reflect upon it and may we worship the true and living God. Not worshiping false gods, not worshiping idols, not worshiping dead things, but worshiping you. May we truly do so through your Son, because we know that this is what an eternal life consists of, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. May we understand who you correctly are, accurately are, truly are, based on our study today. In the name of Christ, amen. That's not the God I worship. I could never worship a God like that. We've heard statements like this said by many people. And what they're actually doing when they say those kinds of things is they learn some new truth, some new fact about the Bible. They learn about who God really is based on what the Bible says, and then they reject it. They reject it, and they object to it, and they say, that's not my God. I will not worship a God like that. And then they walk away from that truth. They walk away and they want nothing to do with that concept or that truth anymore. But can we really do that and have our soul secure? Can we really do that and believe that when we die, we will go to heaven? Can we reject the truth of God, what it says about God himself and his relationship to us, and then have security and have assurance that when we die, we will go to heaven and not hell? The answer to those questions based on this passage, the whole paragraph, but also our verses, verses 30 and 31, is no, absolutely not. We should not walk away from God when we hear about who he truly is, but we should draw near to God and worship him in humility based on our knowledge of who he is. That should be our reaction to it. Because when he says, in his introduction of verse 30, he says, for, assuming, he says, for, in, in a way that he assumes, you should already know this, for we know him who said. We know him who said. He says, we, we should, based on what we already know of God, 
understand what he has said about himself, about us, and how to prepare to meet him one day on the day of judgment. He said, for we know him who said, and then he cites two passages. Now, we introduced it by saying there are people who say, I could never worship a God like that. But let's see someone who heard about the true nature of God, the true personhood of God, the true attributes of God. He heard about it, but he did not walk away from God. He did not condemn God. He did not blaspheme God, but he worshiped God. Let's see an example of that in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. 34 verses 5 to 8. Exodus 34 verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. The Lord appears before Moses, and the Lord announces who he is. This is God himself speaking to Moses, the prophet of God, the holy prophet of God, the one who is already saved, the one who's already redeemed, and God tells him or reminds him about who he is. And there's basically two attributes, basically two. He is loving, but he's also righteous. He is loving, but he's also righteous. Or he is merciful toward our sins, but he's also vengeful, or he will judge us for our sins if we don't repent. The two are the basic attributes. In verses 6 and the first part of 7, it's stressing his love. And then the rest of verse 7 stresses his judgment or his vengeance, his punishment. When it says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He's saying that if people don't repent, if they don't truly believe in who he is, punishment awaits them because they are guilty and their guilt has not been resolved. Their guilt has not been forgiven. Their guilt has not been assuaged or removed from them. They are still worthy of punishment and he will visit that. In the Bible, to visit iniquity means to punish iniquity. He's not going to avoid it. He's going to come and visit it by punishing it. That's what it, he means. And this did not cause Moses, the one who knew God already, it did not cause him to walk away from God. When he heard about the attributes of God, it caused him to worship God, to bow low in haste. It says, the, and Moses made haste. He did it quickly. The moment he was reminded of who God is, his nature, he bowed, made haste to bow low toward the earth, uh, the earth and worship. May that be true of us. From what we learn in Hebrews, may that be true of us. All of us, that we not walk away or run away from the truth of the nature of God, but may it cause us 
to bow low quickly toward the earth and worship. May we do that. Hebrews 10. For we know him who said. Hebrews 10, verse 30. For we know him who said. And what do we know about him? We already know that he's loving and merciful and compassionate and gracious. That's what he's been teaching and preaching throughout this letter. He's been talking about all of that throughout the letter in many, many places. In fact, he he summarizes all of this in verse 26 by saying, this is the knowledge of the truth. It's all right there. It's set before us, this knowledge of the truth, the, the way to know God and be redeemed from our sins and be prepared to meet him is in Christ. This is the knowledge of the truth in the gospel of Christ. And now he is warning us, once we know this, never to walk away from it. Don't reject it. Don't go on sinning, but embrace it. Believe it wholeheartedly. And why? Based on who God is. He fulfills his promises. He is righteous. He's holy. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold his face. He, he knows, and David knows, that the Lord is righteous. In fact, after he asserts, for the Lord is righteous, he quickly says he loves righteousness. That is, God loves righteousness. It's amazing. In the, in the mind of David, the prophet, he, he knows the righteousness of God, for we know him who said, and David identifies who he is. He is a righteous God. He does not tolerate sin. He does not love sin. He does not love wickedness. He loves righteousness. The moment that God is identified as being righteous, he loves righteousness. He blurts that out the way that it is written there in Psalm eleven seven. Though For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. What a beautiful statement. And then who will be able to enjoy that? For the upright will behold his face, he says. The upright. Not that we're upright in ourselves, but we are made upright in Christ. In Christ, we have become upright. We have his righteousness for he made him For God made him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ our sin offering so that if we have Christ, we are righteous. And we are a part of the upright who will see God's face. We will be there and commune with him forever. This is the reason he says, for we know him who said. We know he is a righteous God. Don't neglect that. Don't explain it away. Don't say, oh yes, I know he punishes people. I know he's angry at sin and he will punish the wicked. Don't say that flippantly. Don't believe that casually, but give it its due weight according to the Bible. Just as we should understand the love of God in its true sense and give it its due place in our life, we have to also understand the righteousness of God and give it our Uh, its due place in our life, in our thinking, in our theology. It should be there. That's why he says, for we know him who said. And based on this, where he's now focused on the righteousness of God, he quotes two passages. The first passage he quotes is from Deuteronomy 32, 35. And he quotes it uh, just briefly by saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Which means that the God of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32, 35, 
in that passage that God who announced to the people of Israel, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's warning the people, I have shown you my grace and love, but you should not reject it. Because if you reject it, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. In due time, their foot will slip. It will be slippery. What he means is, on the day of judgment, it's going to be slippery for them. They're going to slip. They're going to fall. They're going to be destroyed on that day of judgment. That's what he means by, in due time, their foot will slip. This verse, actually, Deuteronomy 32-35, was the basis for a famous sermon preached in the 1700s by Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor in New England. And on the basis of that verse, his sermon title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what was it? In due time, their foot will slip. That was the basis, that was the theme verse of his sermon for that day. In due time, their foot will slip. Because why? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance, retribution, justice, however we want to describe this vengeance, justice, righteousness. Uh, this is why God says this, vengeance is mine. Now, this vengeance is not a temporal vengeance. It's, God's not saying that the most notorious of criminals and wicked men, they will always have the vengeance of the civil law courts. No, he's not talking about civil law courts. He's talking about the heavenly, eternal law court. That is the law court of God himself on the day of judgment. Vengeance is mine, which means that whoever is notoriously uh, wicked now, or whoever does not repent of his sins now, however we want to categorize sinners, whoever does not believe in Christ now, there is a day of vengeance, a day of punishment, a day of judgment. And God says, it belongs to me. It belongs to me. The judge of all the earth will do justly. As Genesis 18, 25 says, Abraham knew that the judge of all the earth will do justly. And this is what he's saying here. It belongs to God himself as a righteous God to do justly. And he will retribute or requit or punish, however we would like to describe it. He will do that on the day of judgment. It belongs to him to repay all those people who refused to repent of sin, who refused to embrace Christ as the payment for their sin. If they don't do that, then there is punishment, repayment. And this will last forever. As it says in Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment or eternal life. The repayment is eternal punishment. And it's eternal, the repayment is, why? Because they have offended a holy, eternal God. A God who is eternal and who is holy, and the punishment for that penalty is eternal punishment. Furthermore, he says in verse 30, and again, the Lord will judge his people. The Lord will judge his people. This quote first comes from Deuteronomy 32, 36. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 36. 
he cites these two passages from the Song of Moses because Moses was the basis for their religion or their national faith. The basis of the people of Israel for their national faith, it was the law of Moses. He was the first one to collect them as a nation and then to give them laws for them to obey as a nation, as a country in the land of Canaan. Moses was the first one. So based on the authority of Moses in this song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, which authority they cannot dispute. They know, they all believed, even the, the, the most the most uh, uh, on the fringe of the Jewish faith, even those on the most on the fringe who were not staunch and orthodox and conservative, believing everything, they all believed Moses wrote the law. So he cites a, a, two passages from the Song of Moses that no one will dispute as being of authority, being by the holy prophet, man of God, Moses, by the word of God. This is why he said these things in that song. He cites these two passages. He also cites two passages to prove he's not misinterpreting. To prove he's not misinterpreting. By two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. So he cites these two so that we will not think, oh, well, that was just for the Old Testament, or he just cited an obscure passage, or he cited someone who has no authority or very little authority in the Old Testament, therefore I don't need to believe it. No. And he's also not letting us think when he cites this passage, these two from Deuteronomy 32. He's not letting us say, oh, well, our God, the God of the New Testament, my God in the New Testament, he's not like the way he was in the Old. This is a different God. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. He'll never punish. He'll never send anybody to hell. My God would never send anybody to hell. He's removing that kind of thought from our minds by saying, no, the God that we know from the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. That's why I'm quoting this. In fact, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, the way he was in the past, the way he is now, and the way he will always be is the same. And it, it is this God who will judge his people. He will judge his people. Who is the Lord who will judge his people? As it says in Psalm 35, our God is not like the idols. The idols of the world have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have noses, but they cannot breathe. There's no breath in them. There's no breath in them. Our God is not like that. That's why in the next verse, he says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not a dead idol, not a statue, not like that. He is the living God. He has life, and this life he will use in righteousness and in judgment. This is the Lord who will judge his people. He will judge his people. Now, the judgment that the Lord will bring about for believers in Christ. If we are saved because we believe in Christ, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that on the day of judgment, we will remain secure and we will be with the Lord forever 
because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have true faith and true repentance. We have true faith in the gospel of Christ. We truly believe he died on the cross as a punishment, as a penalty, taking away, taking away my retribution, my punishment. He took it all away, therefore there's no condemnation. That's the sense in which he will judge us on the day of judgment. But there's another way in which he will also judge us on the day of judgment. And we're speaking of true believers. What about the fruit of our faith? What about the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What about how we live from the time of our conversion until the time we meet the Lord? What about that? Which may be just a few moments like it was the thief on the cross. Or it may be many, many years, 50, 60, 70 years, depending on how long we live and when we were converted. Whether it's a little bit or a lot of time that we have, how much fruit is in our life? And then on the basis of the fruit in our life, that is the godliness, the maturity, the holiness that we have in our life, which begins to change in us from the time we are converted. The things we used to see, we don't see them anymore. The things we used to hear, we hear them no more. The way we used to talk, we don't talk like that anymore. The places we used to visit, we don't visit them anymore. Because we know sin happens. We know that sin happens in those places. And we don't want to be sucked into the sin of the world. So we don't go there because we don't want to sin like they sin. And he's saying and that when it says the Lord will judge his people... So what about the fruit of our life from the time of our conversion until our coffin? From conversion to coffin, what is in our life? That fruit will be judged on the day of judgment. And God says, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 to 15, according to that passage, when we sow or when we produce gold, silver, and precious stones, on top of Christ, on top of the foundation of Christ, if we build a building and it has gold, silver, and precious stone, it will survive on the day of judgment. But on top of Christ, if we have wood, hay, and straw, the fire of God's wrath, the fire of God's wrath will burn up whatever things we have done that equates to wood, hay, and straw. And he says, and we shall be saved, yet so as through fire. The fire of God's judgment will test it. And if it's a precious stone, then fine. But if it, is, if it is wood, it'll be burned up. And then our rewards will be issued accordingly. Our rewards will be meted out accordingly. We can be saved, but then we need fruit. That needs to be judged. The Lord will judge his people. However, there's also a third way he will judge his people. Notice it's his people. There are many people who claim the name of Christ, who come into the visible church, who attend and they say their name, uh, that, that they believe in, in the gospel of Christ. They have names such as John and Joseph, or they have names such as Elizabeth and Mary. Good names, wonderful names based on the Bible. But if they're not true Christians then when it says the Lord will judge his people, that judgment, if they're not true Christians, but pretenders, if they are pretenders, false Christians, living and mingling among true Christians, if they are false Christians, 
then that judgment will be a terrifying judgment, as he says. That judgment will be a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Those are the people who will have a horrible, terrifying, scary day of judgment because they lived and mingled and even claimed to be Christians, but they were not true Christians. This is the way it is throughout the Bible. Cain was in the family of Adam and Eve. Cain was a wicked man. Ishmael was in the family of Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael was a wicked man. Esau was in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was a wicked man. The, the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom kings, there were 20 kings when there was two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. All of the northern kings, in one way or another, they did lip service to the truth, to the true faith. But they were all wicked kings, and they led the people astray. In the southern kingdom, they also had 20 kings. Throughout their history, they also had 20 kings. And only a handful of them, only a handful of the 20 were true believers. But all the rest of them, they pretended. They exclaimed. They would call upon the Lord. They would pray sometimes to the Lord. They would say they are the Lord's people, so on and so forth. But they were not true believers. Even in the New Testament, we see that this is the case. The most clear example in the New Testament is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was among the 12 disciples, yet he was a devil, and he always was a devil. And at one point, the devil possessed him in Luke 22, verse 3. The devil possessed him, and then he went on to betray Christ. This is the way it is in the Bible. So when it says the Lord will judge his people, he will judge them in that way too. If his people are not truly his people, then he's going to reject them on the day of judgment. And he's telling us we should not be like that. We cannot be pretenders. We have to be genuine. We have to be authentically his people. Not in name only, but in truth and in deed. Our heart also has to truly know him. And what's the consequence? Verse 31. In verse 31, he says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, why is it terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God? Because the living God is real. He's alive. The living God actually is loving, but also righteous. And this living God one day will act upon his righteousness. He will act upon it. He's not impotent. He's not dead. He's not lifeless. He is living. He is powerful. He's the creator of the world. He's the one that performs miracles in this world. He's the one that sustains the world. Hold, uh, upholding all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. He is the one who sustains everything. He is living. We cannot pretend with the living God whose eyes move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, who judges the intent of the thoughts of the heart, who's the one God who sees the evil and the good in every place. 
This is the God that we worship. He is a living God. He's not an idol. He's not just an object that is lifeless and breathless. He's not like that. Because he's not like that, we can't play games with him, is the point he's making. We can't play games with him. We cannot manipulate the idol. We cannot pretend with the idol. We cannot be false in our hearts with the idol. You see, because God's not an idol. But idolaters, that's the way they are. Idolaters manipulate their idols. They say, this God did this, and the other God did that, and because I like this one God and with his behavior and his qualities, I'm going to be like that, but I'm not going to be like this other God. For example, in Hinduism, one of their gods, Krishna, when he was a young man, he was a womanizer. He was a womanizer, this young man, the god Krishna. When he was a young man, in their mythology, he was a womanizer. So, what do the young men do who justify their womanizing when they are in their youth? They say, well, Krishna was like that, so I'm going to behave like him. So, they take their idol and they misuse their idol. That is, they justify their sin based on their belief that their idol, their false god, they think or they pretend that it's a true god, but they are doing that in order to live the way they want to live. But we can't do that with the living God. That's why he calls him the living God. He is real. He is active. He's powerful. He sees everything. He knows everything. He does not need to investigate anything. He knows it already. The Bible teaches us that his eyes move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, only to teach us that he's omniscient. Not to tell us that he's actually looking and, and investigating and taking a long, long time looking in dark corners to see what we did here or there. Not like that. That's not what it means when his eyes move to and fro. It's just teaching us that God is omniscient. He knows everything already. It's reminding us of that fact and just illustrating it in a way that we can remember, that is memorable. He's just illustrating it by a metaphor that his eyes move to and fro everywhere saying he knows it all. He already knows it. He does not need to investigate. This is the living God. Therefore, that's why he says it is a terrifying thing to fall into his hands, his powerful hands. It's a terrifying thing. We think, many people think, that when they meet God, that it'll be a breeze. When they meet God, God will need to step aside because I'm at the gate. That's the way people think. When they meet God, God is going to lift up their head. We're talking about wicked people who don't believe the gospel. They think that when they die, they're going to have their heads lifted up and they're going to be given all kinds of things that they deserve, that they've been wanting forever and ever. Whatever they have, here, in some scale now, they will have it there forever, and God is just giddy and waiting to give it all to them. This is the way people think of God. They think of the Day of Judgment. They think that what they enjoy now, whatever physical pleasures, whatever entertainments that they enjoy now, they will enjoy it then, because God is so giddy and ready 
to invite everyone in and to let them have whatever they want, whatever the physical pleasures and whatever the entertainments forever and ever. People actually imagine that. But no, God is not going to step aside and he's not there giddy, waiting for us to get there so that he can give us everything so that he can splurge on us. No. Here he says, if we're not ready to meet him, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It will be terrifying. It will be horrible. It will be so dreadful to meet God whose only attitude towards us will be punishment, retribution, judgment, pain, sorrow, torment, affliction, just like the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in Luke 16 lifted his eyes being in torment. Jesus said, Matthew 8, 12, and, uh, he says, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is torment. This is pain. This is suffering. It is horrifying and terrifying and dreadful to face this God. Therefore, be ready. Don't take it casually. Don't say, I trust my good works. Don't say, I don't know what's going to happen. Don't say, I hope so. I do the best I can, I hope so. Don't say any of that. In fact, say, I have confidence. I have full confidence. I believe in Christ. Christ is everything to me. And it doesn't matter what's going to happen for all eternity because the Bible doesn't actually say so, for one. But it does say we will be with Christ and that's the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters is that we will be with our Lord who loved us, who redeemed us, who cares for us, who takes care of everything for us. That's the only thing that matters. I will be with my Lord and Savior. And that's all that matters. Then it will not be terrifying. And then, right now, we can have peace. We can have reconciliation. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can have this confidence. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, the Scripture says. We can have this confidence before him on that day of judgment. May God grant it to each of us, this confidence. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.